Welcome to the All In Gospel Bible Study. Each week, we move chapter by chapter through the Bible towards a comprehensive understanding of what the Bible teaches. All In Gospel is recorded live in White Bear Lake, Minnesota, featuring Dr. Sean Dickers. You can support this broadcast by subscribing or donating at the allingospel.com website. We're in 2 Samuel chapter 5, verse 1. Then all the tribes of Israel came to David at Hebron and spoke, saying, Indeed, we are your bone and your flesh. Also, in time past when Saul was king over us, you were the one who led Israel out and brought them in. And the Lord said to you, You shall shepherd my people Israel and be ruler over Israel. Therefore all the elders of Israel came to the king at Hebron, And King David made a covenant with them at Hebron before the Lord, and they anointed David king over Israel. And David was 30 years old when he began to reign, and he reigned for 40 years. That's a long, healthy reign in the ancient world, for sure. In Hebron, he reigned over Judah seven years and six months, and in Jerusalem, he reigned for 33 years over all Israel and Judah. So finally, David's the king. Like, we've been waiting for this for months. They were waiting for it for years. Um, They're united. They're in Israel. There's one king. Judah had decided to follow David earlier. Now all 12 tribes are following David. And their tone has really changed, has it not? Like, you were always the guy. And that was not the case under Saul. Like, there had been a lot of animosity here that's just gone. Uh, So first of all, we'll dig in on a few of these things. First of all, they argue three reasons why David's going to be their king. Reason number one is verse one, you're our bone and flesh. You're actually Jewish. That's an important thing to say because he was living with the uh, Philistines under their king for a while. So they're kind of welcoming him back into the family when they say that. Verse two, you're a mil- you were a military leader for us and you were a darn good one. So we know not only are you our family and you're going to take care of us, you're also somebody who understands warfare. And we need that kind of person in that role. Uh, Remember Saul, instead of doing battle with his enemies, decided to go after David most of his reign. Like, that's not good military strategy. And he had leaders like Abner that recognized that. And then the third reason that's in verse 2 is also because the Lord said to you that this would happen. That shouldn't maybe be the third reason that they give. It should be the first one. But God said so is their third reason. So you're our family. You're a good military leader. And oh yeah, and God said that this was going to happen. So we're going to believe that, which again goes to the idea that all of Israel knew that God had said this to David. It was a well-known fact, at least among the elders. So that happened back in 1 Samuel 16. David was a young shepherd and he got what was called a calling. He was told that he was going to do something for the Lord and he had no idea how it would happen. And throughout his whole life, we never saw David push his way into the kingship. It was always given to him. And I feel like that should give us a sense of relief for those of us that get anxious about doing things for the Lord. The Lord does it. It's not that hard with the Lord. Like, there's opportunity. We fill it. We do it. It's that easy. It's not a big strained thing. And David had opportunities to grab the crown, literally grab the crown, but it was the wrong way, and he decided to wait for it. And he wasn't going to go grabbing after crowns. So we've seen David come in and do it the right way. And this is the earmark of any good leader, really, A good leader in any context 
is like family, knows how to do the business that's in front of them, and God's called them to do it. And that defines a good leader in almost any context. And we see that happening here too. Verse 3 makes a covenant, and that covenant's before the Lord. David puts the Lord out in front. When it comes to civic matters, David always puts the Lord in front, or at least he has. It's the home life that's messy for David. But when it comes to his job, he does it right. And in his job, he's blessed. In his home, he will not be blessed. They anointed David king. So this is spiritually at this point. This is a key point. If you want the full ceremony, it's in 1 Chronicles 12, which we'll get to eventually. But it gives a very detailed account. This was a big national. It was like a huge holiday. And the anointing to David was a big deal. Uh, we don't get the big deal here because I think in 2 Samuel, we're just getting kind of this history that's more almost of a spiritual nature, like here's why God blessed and here's why God didn't bless at different times. Uh, and in Chronicles, they, they just record all that went into this ceremony. They didn't get into it here, so we won't either. He's 30 years old. He was anointed when he was 15, which means he's had about 15 years of preparation for his ministry. Another big relief for people that might get anxious about what they need to be doing for the Lord. When the Lord calls you to big things, he prepares you for big things. It's never something where he throws people in over their head. And that's a promise. I'll never put, give you temptation beyond what you're able to handle. Right? So David said, had 15 years of smaller leadership roles that have built up to this. Moving from package handler to night shift manager. You know, there's this kind of progression that happens when God raises people up. So then, then the first thing that he does now that he's anointed by all of Israel is that Israel needs a capital. So finally, we get the name of this capital. And the king and his men went to Jerusalem against the Jebusites, the inhabitants of the land, who, David, who spoke to David, saying, you shall not come in here, but the blind and the lame will repel you, thinking, David can't come in here. Nevertheless, David took the stronghold of Zion, that is the city of David. So a few things on this. The Jebusites were a group of people that we've seen earlier in the Bible were large and militarily strong. And part of what made them militarily strong is having a city at the, the crux of the Kidron and the Hinnom Valley up on a hill with walls on either side, an impregnable fortress. Like natural human beings don't just charge Jerusalem and take it. It took even hundreds of years later, it took the Romans an entire army to take Jerusalem. It's a massive force. So when the Jebusites are mocking David and saying, we'll put the blind and the lame people up on the wall and they'll repel your army. The idea is this is such a defensible place, you can't take it. It's untakeable. And since Joshua started to conquer the land, Jerusalem is one of the only holdout cities. It's a holdout city because it's a very defensible city. And it would, to take it would mean a, a loss of life that would be extreme. So they're saying this, um, but this is David's first act as king, is to finish the work that Joshua started. The command of God was drive these people out of the land. So these people are refusing to leave. And they are not only not leaving, they're not scared of David in the least. It says the stronghold of Zion, the word Zion gets used from, this is the first time we see that word in the Bible, gets used 150 times. And all but six of those uses are in the Psalms or the prophets. So Zion is the poetic spiritual name for Jerusalem, which gets connected at the first introduction of the word Jerusalem. Jerusalem's the city. Zion is the spiritual stronghold that's going to be here. And then, of course, you get a third title in, ver in verse 7. It's also the city of David, the civic location or center of David's kingdom. So Jerusalem becomes a major city on the planet, not just for Judaism. 
Later on, Jerusalem will be one of the three major holy sites for, Muslim, for Islam. It, and it is the center of Christianity because that's where Jesus was crucified and he rose again. So Jerusalem becomes the center of the world attention for three of the major world's religions. And it starts here in verse 6. This is the beginning of that. Um, and why is it there? It's because it's a city on a hill, and you can see it from miles away. No matter what direction you're traveling to come to Jerusalem, at the end of the day, you have to go up to get into Jerusalem from any direction. It's pretty unique geography. Um, but we should, from here forwards, and this is important when we get to the prophets, we should be able to interchange Jerusalem, city of David, and Zion. Those are three interchangeable words for one city, one place, and the location. So when the tribes of Israel acknowledge their king, we should see this as kind of a typology too. When God's people unite, strongholds fall. Strongholds of the enemy go down. And it happens when God's people come together. It doesn't happen when God's people get all excited and, and start pillaging the Philistines. It happens when God's people unite behind their king. That's when strongholds go down. There's this power, spiritual power that happens. So nevertheless, despite it being a great thing, all we get, and this is like the historian in me wishes I had more of a story here. How did David take the city? What did he do? We get a very little snippet here, but it starts with verse 7. Nevertheless, David took the city. And then it says this. Now David said on that day, so we get a little glimpse of how he took the city. David said on that day, whoever climbs up by way of the water shaft and defeats the Jebusites, the lame and the blind who are hated by David's soul, he shall be chief and captain. Therefore, they say, the blind and the lame shall not come into the house. So David takes that insult and he kind of flips it. Whoever climbs the water shaft and beats up on those lame and blind people that I'm not a big fan of, you're going to get to be captains in my new army in this new kingdom we just founded. So they will be the ones that go first. Again, the imagery here is just great. What's a water shaft? In a city that's on a hill, the only downside is you have nowhere to put your waste. So what they would do is they'd create giant gutters that would take the waste from the city and flush it down the side of the hill into the Hinnom or Kidron Valley, past the graves. So you'd have a giant graveyard, and there would be a spot where the crud goes down into the river so it can be washed away. So to climb the water shaft in the first century Jerusalem meant you were going up the poop hole to get to the city, right? You had to be willing to climb through the crud to be a champion in David's army. The typology of that's one, like when Jesus says, if you want to be first, you need to be the greatest servant. The first shall be last and the last shall be first. Only my soldiers that are willing to go through the crud, you're the ones that I'm going to promote. Like the image here is really strong. And the same is true in the church. If you want to be great in the church, be willing to give up parts of your life so you can serve the church. It's really easy. Put yourself last. So they're going to climb up through this sewer pipe. Apparently this is the only way in. After this passage in 1 Chronicles 11, these people that did this task became David's mighty men. These are the people that volunteered to do it, which is why amongst David's mighty men, you get people that aren't Hebrew, aren't Jewish. Some of those other people that followed David became leaders in this army because they were willing to do the dirty work. Literally, they're willing to do the dirty work. And so that willingness to do what it takes to get it done creates the list of the mighty men in David's army. And according to Chronicles, that's where we get the list. Again, that's not where we're at tonight, so we won't go through all those names. Verse 9, Then David dwelt in the stronghold, that's Jerusalem, and called it the city of David. And David built all around from Milo and inward. So David went on and became great 
and the Lord God of hosts was with him. Verse 10 gives just kind of a giant summary of this is the kingdom of David, and this is what happens. And then we see then Hiram in verse 11, it starts a new section. So we're going to see how David became great as a king, and that's what we're going to see in the next few chapters. So David dwelt in the stronghold. It becomes his capital. He was in Hebron for seven years, and this is the move to Jerusalem. So throughout the Old Testament, we've come to the place where the tabernacle would reside, where the ark of God would sit. And it's always referred to as a place that God will show them later. Like right now, you don't know the location. So as David picks Jerusalem, he's picking a city, but he hasn't moved the ark there yet. And that's going to be kind of, an, like we'll get to that in this chapter. And before, Until the ark moves there, it might not be the place, but it gets to be a little clearer idea that this could be the place, not just a place. And we get a hint of that in verse 9 when it says, and David dwelt in the stronghold. Because the people writing this are looking at it in retrospect. And they're, starting to, they're already associating it with that. When it says David built all around, that's reconstruction. I'm thinking he put a grate up over the water shaft, which is called, by the way, today that's Warren's shaft. I mean, there's, it's a named shaft. And the Lord of God of hosts was with him. That's the important part. Uh, he's done what God commanded him to do, and God's with him in doing that. And he becomes great. He has to endure a lot to become great, but he does become great. Then verse 11. Then Hiram, king of Tyre, sent messengers to David and, and cedar trees and carpenters and masons, and they built David a house. David doesn't even have to build his own palace, right? When God's in it, it's just easy. People show up and help. So David knew that the Lord had established him as king over Israel and that he had exalted his kingdom for the sake of his people Israel. He knows God's in it because they're dealing with the crud and God takes care of everything else. Right? It just, everything works. That humbling aspect, and now the kingdom gets built for them. So here's the thing. They're shepherds as a nation. They're nomadic, herding, shepherdy people. They don't have a ton of carpenters and masons. So it's a really generous gift when Hiram sees this new nation get founded, and it's a way for him to ally himself with Israel. Every nation that allies themselves with Israel from this time forward is blessed for doing that. When a nation distances themselves from Israel, they're not blessed. And it's an amazing historical trend that you can see throughout 5,000 years of human history. And it's still true today, right? So this, this alliance that this Gentile king has not only honors David, but honors that the Lord that has established him, verse 12, right? And I think that's kind of encouraging when you see Gentiles in the Bible being part and parcel to the blessing that God's giving to the world. So I think Hiram as a king is really important. He's going to show up again in 1 Kings 5.1. When Solomon takes the throne, Hiram once again sends workers to help build things for Solomon. Like this is an amazing alliance that just kind of goes under the radar. But Israel doesn't have to worry about their northwest border because they have this ally up there that protects them and guards them, uh, which is just a wonderful thing. Hiram's a pretty smart guy to ally himself with this new king, right? Like... Israel's a pretty new nation, and you never know who to make your alliance with. David's not a powerful nation at this point, but Hiram sees ahead and knows who David is and likely is judging David's character when he does this. Verse 7, 13. David took more concubines and wives from Jerusalem after he had come from Hebron. Also, more sons and daughters were born to David. Now, these are the names of those who were born to him in Jerusalem. Shamua, 
Shobab, Nathan, Solomon. We'll come back to Solomon. Ibhar, Elishua, Nepheg, Japhia, Elishama, Eliada, Eliphelet. I wish we had names like this today. Like these are great names. Very inventive. I'm going to take some time. So last week I kind of skipped over the multiple wives of David. And I want to come back to that point this week a little bit because um, it's important we do this. David's history is marked with successes and failures. And the histories don't delineate between them. It doesn't tell us that Hiram building a palace for David was a good thing. It just tells us David thought it was a good thing because that's the history. So it's almost like we have to make judgments as we read the histories of the Word of God. It is assumed that every little Jewish boy and girl knew the Torah before they were taught the histories. So it's assumed that the rabbi would be going through the histories with them and they'd say, ah, 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 you remember what Leviticus said? Ah, 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 you remember Deuteronomy? And the way they taught the law was they brought case studies from their history and then they would go through the law. And the rabbi would ask questions. It's why they came and asked Jesus questions, right? That was the style of teaching that evolved out of this. So what do you think? Was it good for David to take many wives? And the kids in the room should know the law. This was like fourth grade learning for them. So when we confuse this as grown adults in the 21st century, we are really taking a step backwards, right? This is basic material for Jewish kids, right? Was it right for David to take many wives? And the answer to that is, heck no, right? So I want to go back through this because we should know this by now. Genesis 2.24 defines marriage. Steph's writing it down. You better write this one down, honey. Therefore, podcasters, Steph is my wife. I'm not saying honey to random women. <laughs> and we love you, podcasters. Genesis 2.24, therefore shall a man leave his father and mother, this is God saying this is how it should be, and shall cleave unto his wife, and they shall be one flesh. That does not make the husband owner of property. That's a lie. That makes the husband somebody who cleaves to, as though his life depends on it, this woman he has married, and they become one flesh, not one over the other, but two people in a marriage that are going to spend their life together and they're entirely dependent on one another. They might have different roles, but they're absolutely equal in God's eyes. Does that make sense? Okay, so if we're little Jewish five-year-olds, we all got that point, okay? And then there's a curse if you screw that up. Deuteronomy 17, 17. Neither shall a husband, he, in this particular context, we're talking about the king of Israel, neither shall he multiply wives to himself that his heart turn not away. Does David's heart turn away? Yep, it does. Why does it turn away? In part because he broke the law. And there are natural consequences to that happening. So if you can depart from the law in this aspect, your heart is not following the Lord in that part of your life. And it's going to come back to get you. And the histories teach us that that's exactly what happens to David. He also gives another command, Deuteronomy 7.3, nor shall you make marriages with foreigners. You shall not give your daughter to their son, nor take their daughter from your son. You're going to marry people that are God followers. The biggest mistake a young Christian can make is to marry somebody who's not a believer and think that marriage is on the right track. You're starting off on the wrong foot. Marry people that are following the Lord. Wait for that person to show up. So David's commanded by God himself to only take one wife 
and he breaks the rule. So when we see this text in here, we got to know what that is. So that leads me to another thought. This question of women being property in the Old Testament. And again, I love how you guys handled this last week. I just want to go back to the word on this. Like, and I, that's how we want to be as biblical thinkers. We always want to say, okay, where does the Bible say that? Because I hear you saying that, but I want to know where the Bible says that because I'm really sick and tired of human opinions about the Bible. I just want to know what the Bible says, and I want to stick to it. So I did a little homework. Okay? The Bible typically always, <laughs> I couldn't find an exception, refers to humans and property as two distinct elements in every major context. Genesis 39.5, Joseph was put in charge of his master's household, the people, and the property, two distinct things. People are never property in the Old Testament, not once. In fact, if you do a word search of all the uses of the word property, you will go through a few hundred uses of that word. It is never used in reference to human beings, ever. We need to know that about the words. So when we hear somebody say something different than that, we're confident in what that is. And we might not be confident on the spot, but boy, we got a week's time to go do some research and homework on that. We need to look that stuff up and know that what we're hearing is a false teaching. And we need to understand that. So when things get dedicated, this is great, they're separated. Leviticus 27, 28, I just brought a couple of these to just kind of give you the, it's again and again and again. Any, any specialty set apart for the Lord, something you're going to give to God, whether a person, an animal, or property must never be sold or bought back. You don't sell people or anything you give to the temple, it's a gift. And it's separated into people, animals, and property. They're not the same thing. Women can inherit and keep property. How can you be property if you can inherit and own property? Uh, due to Numbers 36, 8, the daughters throughout the tribes of Israel who are in line to inherit property must marry within their tribe. Why would that command is, exist if women are property? It's never the case, biblically, that that happens. And I want to be, I just want clarity around these things. So when we review all of those uses, we always see a consistent biblical perspective on people not being property. Sadly, humans screw that up all the time, including David, right? So we need to know that when we read what David's doing, it's not always because he's following the law. There are numerous laws regarding employees or servants because we employ each other. Right? That's called an economy. And there are the, there's a vast, overwhelming tipping towards mercy and kindness when we deal with people, even when they work for us. Right? So again, when we see a, a slavery in the 1700s that was about property, that's sick and wrong, and God hates it. And it was God's people that stood up against slavery because of what they read in the Bible. Don't let anybody tell you that history is any different. It was pastors all over the country that said, we have to stop slavery. We have to end it. It was William Wilberforce in England that said, we have to end this stuff. It's evil. We can't own each other. Where did they get that from? Leviticus 25, 53. He shall be with them yearly as a hired servant. He shall not rule over with rigor in any way in your sight. When we treat other people as employees, God's watching how we treat them. So when we're night managers at FedEx, we need to remember that. How we treat people is something God holds us accountable for. There's more accountability for the owner, the leader, or the employer of things than there is for the servant or the hired hand that works on the property, right? So in taking a lot of wives, I want to be really clear, David is in sin here, right? Unequivocally, and he's living contrary to God's will in this. Like, 
And Paul was the same way, like I'm the same way. I know the right thing to do, but then I do the other thing. And I know that the, the flesh in me wants to do the wrong thing, even though my heart towards the Lord wants to do the right thing. David had a heart for the Lord. Sadly, his flesh wasn't always in agreement. And there's this conflict in humanity that gets introduced through these passages, which I think is rich and robust, honest literature. And I have such a high regard for it. But I, don't also, I also want to read it understanding that that principle is true throughout the Bible. David does sinful things. He's not the Messiah. He's not perfect. And there's areas where he's a typology of Christ, but he's not Christ. And the Bible makes that really clear. And I'm really encouraged that the champions of the Bible had issues. Because I have issues. And I'd say you have issues, but then you'd think I was picking on you. We all do. We all struggle with that. And isn't it encouraging that God can use people even when they screw up a lot? He can use them despite themselves. So... Romans 7, 18, for I know that in me that is my flesh dwells no good thing. For desire is present within me, but I don't find it doing that which is good. For the good which I desire, I don't do, but the evil which I don't desire, that I practice. I think that's David too. Like he's doing this because this is what kings did. Kings accumulated wives as political contracts, as agreements, and even in the ancient world they treated women like property. And David's reflecting that culture, but that doesn't mean God wants him to do that kind of thing. So God, Paul, by the way, goes on to say, like this isn't an excuse for sin. This is a reason that we fight it with everything that's in us. Our flesh wants to be sinful. It wants to be angry. It wants to be depressed. Our flesh wants to think about ourselves all the time or get upset about the world. And, it, and Paul argues that's a battle that we fight. David should be fighting this behavior, and he doesn't do it. So <laughs> most of all, we see the consequences of sin because the story goes on. And we'll get to see that all of David's troubles in his kingship and in his ministry are a result of his wives and his children. Right? He doesn't have civic problems. And it's kind of an interesting thing. God blesses one areas of his life and other areas where we're planting the seeds of sin now. Those are the seeds that will bite him in the butt later on. That's the story of David. So we go back to the civic in verse 17. It flips right back from that home domestic life, goes right back to the civic life. Now when the Philistines heard that they had anointed David king over Israel, all the Philistines went up to search for David. Remember, Achish is likely still the king. Like he's probably ticked off. Like, hey, this was one of my guys. And David heard of it and went down to the stronghold. The Philistines also went and deployed themselves in the valley of Rephaim. They meet on the field. Um, as God moves with his people, the enemy moves with their people. Like, the more successful a ministry gets, the more it comes under attack. And that's just always true. And it should be a high compliment to a ministry when the enemy comes to attack it. And I think that's encouraging. Like, I used to get upset or worried about this. Now I'm like, we've arrived, right? We fi I finally got a harassing phone call for the first time. Like, we're here. People know we're here. All right. So when there's a weak Israel, the enemy doesn't care. When Israel's infighting and having civil wars, the, it, the Philistines don't care. It's when they unite that now they're, they better shut this stuff down right now. We don't want God's people on the move. So they search for David is the language went up to search for David. Notice they're going after David, not necessarily Israel. I think that's interesting. They're scared of a man of God being in charge. They weren't that scared of Saul. They just beat him back city after city. 
But when David's in charge, uh uh-oh, we better take him out. So David inquired of the Lord. We get to see David's leadership. When it comes to the civic stuff, he goes right to inquire of the Lord. He goes right to it. David inquired of the Lord, saying, shall I go up against the Philistines? Will you deliver them into my hand? Like, if you don't want me to fight, I won't fight. I'm not even scared of them. Do you want to do it? So we get used to this being the right way to do things. If only he would have done this with his wives, right? For all the faults we see in David, we also see this great leadership where he looks for God's heart on civic matters before he gets into it. And the Lord said to David, go up, for I will doubtless deliver the Philistines into your hand. So David went to Baal Perazim, and David defeated them there and said, the Lord has broken through my enemies before me like the breakthrough of water. Therefore, he called that name of that place Baal Perazim, which means the Lord of the breaks, right? This is like a dam breaking and the water just rushes through. And you wonder if that's what it looked like on the battle lines. And they left their images there, their idols. And David and his men carried them away. I think it's important here that when David gets done with this, not only does he start in verse 19 inquiring of the Lord, but as the battle's over, he says, the Lord has broken through. He gives credit to the Lord. He inquires of the Lord first. He gives credit to the Lord after. And you just see that that symmetry is a winning combination. Lord, you want me to do something? Okay, I'm going to do what you want to do. And then you give God the glory when, you, when he comes through for you. I think that's fun. The idols, uh, the fact that the Philistines marched their idols into combat says something about the nature of the culture of the Philistine army. This was an issue of our God versus your God. It was a very spiritual kind of combat between these pagan Canaanite empires and the, and the Jewish people. They were arguing which God was in charge. So these victories would go that way. We've seen that a lot. Um, and the trophies would be these idols, and you'd lay them at the feet of your God's temple, right? So 1 Chronicles 14, 12, we know that David's people did more than just carry them away. Here, we, all we get in verse 21 is they carried them away. 1 Chronicles 14 explains that they burned them in a fire. So they carried them off the battlefield. And the Jewish people didn't go lay them at the feet of God's temple or the tabernacle because God said he wanted idols nowhere near his tabernacle, which breaks with pagan traditions in that area. So I'm not going to take a trophy and put it before God. God doesn't want the trophy anywhere near him. He wants that stuff burned. So they are obedient in burning those things. Um, there will be no sacred cows near, near the tabernacle. Um, and destroying those idols is something that, again, God's people unite. They get rid of the idols, and they take them out, and God guides us in doing that. Verse 22, then the Philistines went up again and deployed themselves in the valley of Rephaim. So David inquired of the Lord, and he said, you shall not go up, circle around behind them, and come up on them in front of the mulberry trees. Very specific instructions from God on this. You would think David had beat the Philistines once in the exact same geographic location, and he would just go, well, God's already told me to attack. And I think as Christians, we do this all the time. We do a ministry, and it was really successful. The year comes around, and it's like, okay, should we do the same thing? And the instinct of humanity is like, well, yeah, we do the same thing. We've already had God's answer on this. But David inquires of the Lord a separate time for a separate event in verse 23. He asks again, do you want us to do it? And lo, God gives a very different answer this time. So just because something worked last time doesn't mean God wants us to keep doing it over and over and over again for 40 years. You have to stay. That's really threatening for people in the church. Well, we do this all the time. We've always done it this way. And God's like, you need to inquire on, like, 
we need to always have a heart that's like, what do we do next? What's the next thing, Lord? And how do you want us to do it this time instead of just continuing to repeat activities? I can think of an example even from this ministry when we were doing Saturate. And we had some people that went out and did Saturate. And it was awesome. It was great fellowship and we had fun. And we covered some zip code areas and it was really neat. And, I, and then as we're praying about it, like it was like, okay, it seems like we're kind of done with this. And we kind of asked around and it was like, yeah, we're kind of done with this activity. And so we wrapped it up and kind of ended it. And that for some people was like, well, why did we stop? And so we stopped because the Lord was telling us to stop. And we started because the Lord told us to start. And when the cloud moves, we'll move. And when the cloud stops, we'll stop because we want to be that kind of people before our God. And it's, I think to me, that's an easier way to live. Like think of the pressure that takes off on, of us to keep things going that God hasn't in, right? And suddenly when God's spirit's in it, it's easy and it happens quickly. So circling around behind them, the Philistines, remember, remember the tactic that David had the first time. If they're attacking in the same place at the same time, they're expecting David to react the same way. So what God's giving David here is a lot of wisdom. I'm thinking the Philistines are ready for a full frontal charge this time. They got plans for that charge. And it would have been an abject disaster for David to do it. So God's like, nope, circle around behind them, which sets them off their guard. And militarily, that gives them a good situation. I think the fact that it's in front of the mulberry trees, this is probably a well-known little spot. To us, this is lost to history. We don't know where the mulberry trees were. Um, but he's, he, he does different tactics. Application for today, when we do apologetic work with people, like when we're sharing the gospel with people, a lot of times people will come back for a second round and they expect us to react the same way because they want to slap that thing down. They've been prepping for it for a week. And we haven't been because like, we're just living our lives. right? But they're ready to get you. And I think that's why even when we're talking to people about our faith, we're constantly asking the Lord, what do you want me to say? What do you want me to say? Because maybe this time he doesn't want you to bring up that Bible verse. Maybe he wants to put a different Bible verse and come around by the mulberry trees. So in apologetics, we don't always have to react the same way every time to people. You know, we can just be praying, Lord, how do you want me to react? Why does God do that? And part of it is he wants to have a relationship with us. He doesn't want to just give us a bunch of coded laws. He wants us to actually ask him for things when it's time to do that. So we ask, we expect, we wait, we're faithful for it, and in doing that, we glorify God because we live a life that I think is the admiration of every other world religion. We just live a life of grace and hope, and we trust in our Lord to lead us every day. What a beautiful thing. Verse 24, And it shall be when you hear the sound of marching in the tops of the mulberry trees, then you shall advance quickly. Uh, in the K uh, King James Version, it is, you shall bestir yourselves, which I think is a beautiful way to put that. This is a very poetic instruction from the Lord. For then the Lord will go out before you too and strike the camp of the Philistines. And David did so, and the Lord as the Lord commanded him, and he drove back the Philistines from Geba as far as Gezer. He doesn't slaughter the Philistines, he drives them back. Do you see the difference? Which means the people that want to stay and resist or fight that, they're going to get killed. And other people that want to just run and get back into a territory that's outside the boundaries of Israel, they're allowed to run and get away. So this is, again, he's fighting unlike Saul. He's fighting like God has instructed his people to fight. It's kind of refreshing to see that come back. You know, even though David did a mass slaughter, he's not fighting that way anymore. He's fighting very differently as king of Israel. You hear, then you shall. Listening is essential to attacking. Like, we don't attack people unless the Lord is guiding us to have that conversation with people. 
Like in the New Testament, we, our battle is spiritual. We have conversations. The sound of marching in the trees, people get really excited about that. Was that an angel army in the trees? What does it look like? A simple reading of this, it was a sound that they heard. And if sometimes you sit out in the woods and just listen, sometimes it sounds like there's order to the wind blowing through the trees, right? So when the trees start going all at the same time, that's kind of miraculous because it's a little more chaotic when the wind's blowing through trees. But these trees kind of started moving in unison, and there's no mention of angels here, but the sound sounded like an army, and that was God's cue. So the miracle here is that God works through sound and nature. Like, we haven't seen that before in the Bible. It's totally new. And the only way David would know to respond to that is because he's listening to the Lord. He never stops doing this. Well, I shouldn't say never. He's going to screw up later in life, but right now he's doing it the right way. Fair enough? Advance quickly. Bestir yourselves. Be ready. When you hear God say go, we go. And we don't worry about other stuff. We don't worry about 401ks. We don't worry about what people think. We don't worry about that stuff. When God says move, we move. And we do it without hesitation. Like the worst that can happen is we're overly zealous and God's like very nice, cool down, right? But he's happy that we're zealous. He's happy that we move when we've been told to move. The Hebrew there of advance quickly and the Hebrew root of it means all senses of advancing. They're advancing physically, mentally, and spiritually. They're ready to go because they're healthy <laughs> and they've taken care of themselves. They're a well-fed army. So they are ready to, to move forward. And the root of that means to point or to decide. I thought that was really interesting. To advance quickly means decide yourselves. Take a cut or sharpen yourself or bestir and go in a certain direction. I thought that was a really cool way to think about listening to the Lord. When the Lord speaks, we make a decision. And everybody has a decision to make. When God's speaking into your life, we make that decision and we go. We listen and we move. Verse 25, and David did so as the Lord commanded him. When men and women of God do what the Lord tells them to, God's kingdom grows. It's just that there's so few people that really want to do that. So really, after the Jebusites are bumped out and the Philistines are bumped out, there's no, there's no Canaanites left in the land. This is the first time we've seen that since God gave the instruction to Joshua. He's absolutely cleared out this little slice of land about as big as New Hampshire, and he's got it cleared out for God's people. The rest of the world gets the rest of the world. But this little area gets carved out. So Geba, as far as Gezer, that finishes the work. Essentially, it's interesting because when we talked about Abner, remember when Saul died, Abner started retaking cities? So the way this says from Geba to Gezer, that includes some of the cities that Abner took. So it's like David finished Abner's work, which was the right stuff to do. Um, when Saul died, Abner turned to the work of God, which says something about like Abner was a guy that got killed here, but it seems like Abner was, knew what God's will was and was kind of trying to do it which is why he was trying to then make an alliance with David and why it's really tragic that he got killed. Like It'd be kind of cool if he was still around and seeing that that work got finished. So David's unwavering. He's got a plan, and that plan is we're going to follow God. Chapter 6. Again, David gathered all the choice men of Israel. We know who those are now. 30,000. And David arose and went with all the people who were with him um, from Baale, Judah, to bring up from there the ark of God, whose name is called by the name of the Lord of hosts who dwells between the cherubim. I like that kind of language. It's very... 
very big language. So this is a celebration of Israel. The job has been finished. It's time to move the ark to the capital city. One problem. <laughs> they forgot to read the book. It's one thing to hear God's word directly. It's another thing to read God's word and follow it, which is largely what we get. We get the Holy Spirit that talks to us sometimes very directly, but we get the word of God to test that against because we test all spirits, right? And when the word of God aligns with the spirit of God, we know what to do and it's, there's clarity in it. So David doesn't read the word and it, it, it's problematic. So David inquires and wins with the military stuff, but he does not inquire here and it becomes a problem. Remember the Ark of God is a, a golden box, about yay big. It's made of cedar and it's lined with gold inside and out. And inside the Ark are three things. Anybody remember what they are? What? Manna? Aaron's staff? And the Ten Commandments, stones. You guys did them in like reverse order, doing the hardest to remember first. So three things. One, the Ten Commandments, which are like 400 years old now. These are old stones. Um, have the law of God on them. Aaron's staff was the budding confirmation of the Levitical priesthood law. And then you have the jar of manna that shows God's provision. God's law, God's priesthood, God's provisions. All in the ark of God, the box of God, and that box is covered by a lid, which has a throne that has two angels touching wings on top of it, which is the mercy seat is what it's called. So God's law, his priests, and his provision are covered with the mercy seat, and God sits over the top of that. It's a beautiful image. And it's the only image God asks them to make. He doesn't want a little idol statue, because frankly, they didn't know how to carve that well. And he didn't want a hokey little statue. So he wants a box that, you know, has an empty spot on top, and that empty spot he'll fill himself. And he does. The Shekinah glory of God, as reported by the ancient Jews, was a cloud by day, a fire by night, that would sit in that seat and then also be visible above the tabernacle. Like, stunning kind of thing. They didn't need an idol for God because God gave them his own visual representation, which changed form all the time. So they couldn't make an image of it. And he dwells in this mercy seat because God's going to have a law, but he's going to dominate that law and cover it with mercy. That's how God works. He's working that way with David right now. He's got mercy for David's sins and, and is moving his plan forward with, with imperfect people. So this ark has sat with Abinadab now for 20 years. Remember, the Philistines took the ark as a trophy. They all got plagues on their butts. And then they decided to send this sucker back and they put it on a cart and the oxen just rolled it right up to Abinadab's house and they just left the ark there, right? So they're going to move it and bring it up to the new capital. Verse 3. So they set the ark of God on a new cart. They're thinking, we'll make a brand new cart for the ark. Ah, they should have read the book. And they brought it out of the house of Abinadab, which was on a hill, and Uzzah and Ahio, the sons of Abinadab, drove the new cart. And they brought it out of the house of Abinadab, which was on a hill, accompanying the ark of God. And Ahio went before the ark. Nothing's supposed to go before the ark. And then David and all the house of Israel played music before the Lord on all kinds of instruments, on the fir wood, on harps, on stringed instruments, on tambourines, on sistrums, and on cymbals. They made a lot of noise, right? And this is a big gala festival. Those instruments are fun music instruments. Big, loud foot stomping music. 
right? These weren't dirges they were playing. These were, these were hoedowns, right? Symbols alone, like voices with symbols, like you get those big crash noises. This is an epic thing. So no matter uh, how new the cart is, God had a plan for God's people to move it. When the Philistines do it the wrong way, God has mercy. When the Israelites do it the wrong way, things are not going to go well for them. So this is, the ark has um, rings on the side, and there's supposed to be a pole that goes through the rings, and then there's, arc, there's priests on either side that hold it up. And they hold it by the pole because nobody touches the ark. Because impure doesn't go into pure. If I have a pure glass of water and you put arsenic in it, I'm not drinking the water. Like, it doesn't go that way. But when you have pure light, you can put the darkness into it and the darkness will evaporate. Right? And that's the image we get for God. He's so holy and pure, anything that comes into his presence will just be obliterated. And the ark being a symbol of his presence, he's going to enforce and teach his people that humans don't get to be God. And you don't even get to think you're God. You need to think you need salvation in order to come into God's presence. So he's training the Jewish people in that. And this is part of how he teaches them, right? And you shall put staves into the rings on the sides of the ark, Exodus 25, 14, that the ark might be born with those staves. So Uzziah and Eho, the sons of Abinadab, are appropriately named strength and friendliness, right? And that's the Hebrew for their names. No amount of strength carries God's word forward. It's not about our strength. No amount of friendliness or kindness carries God's word forward. It's not about how friendly we are, right? God's word will stand on its own and do its own work. So there's only one family that should be carrying the ark. That's the Korathites, uh, Numbers 4.15. They're Levites, and they, are, um, they should be doing that. So strength and charisma are not necessarily the same thing as God moving forward. And God doesn't need our strength or our charisma to carry his glory forward. The burden of the Lord is to be carried by God's anointed, not by a cart and not by animals. Right? So there's some things here that needed to happen. So Israel played music before. They get all excited. They're happy. The emotional status of God's people does not justify doing it the wrong way. And I think that's a core message that's very practical today. It's not about our emotional state. It is about reading God's word and doing it God's way. And there is a great emotion that comes out of that. It's an outpouring of filling the cup the right way. But if all you're going in for is the music and the celebration of it, and there's no cup getting filled, it's empty and it doesn't honor God. So their feelings don't help them, their strength doesn't help them, and their friendliness doesn't help them. So what pleases God? Obedience. And that's the thing they're missing here obedience to God's word. It can look good and sound good and still not be obedient to God's will. And to me, that's something that I want to always check myself against. So when they came to Nacon's threshing floor, Uzzah put out his hand to the ark of God and took hold of it, for the oxen stumbled. <laughs> Do oxen stumble a lot? No. Like, this is almost a miracle that you get two oxen and they stumble to the point where the cart's tipping or something. Like, why is he worried about the ark? So he thinks he's going to hold up the ark. Which leads to the question, if Uzzah didn't reach out and grab the ark, would it have floated in the air? Okay, the Bible doesn't say, but I think it's an interesting question. He did put his hand on the ark. Verse 7, Then the anger of the Lord was aroused against Uzzah and struck him there for his error, and he died there by the ark of God. That sounds super harsh if you don't know the law. 
and you don't know that this has been set up for a while. It's interesting that this is at verse 6, the threshing floor is where this happens. Do you see that? What happens on a threshing floor? It's where God separates the wheat from the chaff. It's where a farmer does that with his crops. And Jesus tells parables about the wheat and the chaff being split or separated. And it's entirely dependent on who obeys God and who thinks they can hold God up with their own strength. Right? So I think it's interesting that it's Uzzah that puts his hand out. Strength puts his hand up. Numbers 4.15, and when Aaron and his sons have made an end of the covering of the sanctuary and all the vessels of the sanctuary as the camp is to set forward, after that the sons of Koath shall come to bear it, and they shall not touch any holy thing lest they die. These things are the burden of the sons of Koath in the tabernacle of the congregation. God made it super clear, but they didn't bother to read it. So they're going forward thinking they're doing this great thing, moving the ark up to the capital, and because they're not reading what they should be reading, they're making massive mistakes, and they're doing it thinking they're awesome. right? This is the deception that Satan loves. People can march forward and think they're doing it all the right way, and then there's nothing inside of it. It's empty, and it's vain. Everybody around them sees the hypocrisy in what they're doing, and you just get sick of it. right? So God keeps his promise, you touch these things, you're going to die. He actually is keeping his promise here. So is that harsh that our God keeps his promises? Mm, in this case, that's yeah, a little harsh. But it's also a warning to us that God will keep his promises. And he has throughout history, and he will keep his promises going forward. Some of those promises are good. I will not leave you or forsake you. I like that promise. And because he keeps this promise, I can be confident that he'll keep that promise. Some of his promises are like, if you do not come to the Lord God Almighty through Jesus Christ and his sacrifice on the cross, you will perish, right? That's a pretty harsh promise, but there will be people that perish because they don't bother to listen to it. He'll keep that promise too. It's all the same God. So this impure hand reaches out to touch the holy, and that impure hand instantly dies because the holy simply can't have the unholy in its presence. It just like darkness and light, the light just evaporates, whatever touches it. So David becomes angry because of the Lord's outbreak against Uzzah. Okay, Lord, how could you do this? Why are you doing this? And he called the name of the place Perez Uzzah to this day. That's still what they call it. So like a lot of us, David gets upset when he sees God's consequences. How could the Lord God Almighty do this thing? So Uzzah did what he thought was right. He wanted to save the ark from tipping. His motive is good, but his method is bad. And God's very consistent with it. And I, to me, I think this is just a, like a, a real, like snaps you back into reality, kind of the nature of our relationship to God here. So Perez Uzzah means, is actually Perez Perez in the Hebrew. It's just an emphatic, strength, strength, right? Or this, this idea of um, the breach, right? The breach of Uzzah. Um, so he broke, broke. And, and, and so that emphatic comes out in the Hebrew by a double use. It says that Uzzah made an error. Do you see that? It's the only use in the Bible of that word, shawl, which makes it truly unique, and we can't compare it to any other words in the Bible in their context and usage. So it's an absolutely unique word that gets used here. And there's no other ancient text that uses that word. So all we can do is try to look at the root of the term, which is an error or a fault, um, and it's truly unique that this error is kind of special in the Bible, like this presumption that you can touch God without being pure first 
is, is an error in thinking. It misses the mark, the very definition of sin. Uzzah thought God needed a cart, and God didn't need it. He didn't need Uzzah to protect him, and he didn't need a cart. What he needed was servants that would obey him because they loved him. We don't prop up a false god. Our god stands on his own. He doesn't need us to build him up or argue or defend him. We should be ready to defend our own faith in that god to anybody who asks and wants to know why we believe in that god. But our god doesn't need us to prop him up. He will have his way in all of human history. And I take great comfort in that because I am very small. And I don't want to serve a god that needs me because that makes my god very, very small too, like the size of a box, which is about all I can handle. So Deuteronomy 10, 12, Now Israel, what does the Lord your God ask of you but to fear the Lord your God, to walk in obedience to him, to love him, to serve the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul. Mm, that's it. That's what God needs. 1 Corinthians 13 expands on the idea, Though I speak in the tongues of men and angels, but I have not love, I have become sounding brass or a clanging cymbal. Is Paul thinking of the instruments being used by David in this situation when he says that? And I don't know, but I, you know, it's not the music. And though I have the gift of prophecy and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and though I have all faith so that I could remove mountains. You know, Jesus talked about moving mountains with your prayer. But I don't have love, I'm nothing. And though I bestow all my goods to feed the poor, and though I give my body to be burned, but I don't have love, it profits me nothing. If we don't love God and love and obedience are Old Testament, those are the same thing. If you love God, you obey God. If you obey God, you're loving God. And it works both ways. We can do all sorts of good things, like Uzo was thinking he was doing, and not please a God that we love. Man, don't do that. Like as a body, as a people, as brothers and sisters in the faith, let's admonish each other not to just do good things, but to love our Lord first, and out of that comes any good thing that we're possibly able to do. And David becomes angry lar largely because out of his ignorance and out of his confusion, he doesn't know what's going on because they didn't stop to read the book. So the good intentions just don't cover it. David then, verse 9, this is interesting, David was afraid of the Lord that day and he said, how can the ark of the Lord come to me? How can it come to Jerusalem if we can't even move this thing without people dying? So that question, it's not the anger that's the problem. The anger turns into fear, a fear of the Lord, which is healthy, and the fear of the Lord gets him to go back and read the word of God. That's a super healthy progression, folks. It's okay to be mad at God. He's big enough to take it. You know? And we see a lot of people that go through tragedies, and they're like, why God, why God? And it's like, give him that anger. It's, you're sending it to the right place. But in that, start to understand that this is a God where he has a world where we endure things. That's terrifying. Also, a healthy way to look at it. Life is sad and short sometimes. But then turn that into seeing what God has to say on that matter. Start reading the book of Job. Start understanding what's going on with David here. This is a good way to move forward in this process. So verse 10, So David would not move the ark of the Lord with him into the city of David, but David took it aside into the house of Obed-Edom, the Gittite, and the ark of the Lord remained in the house of Obed-Edom the Gittite three months. And the Lord blessed Obed-Edom and all of his household. Aha. So the Lord can kill, but he can also bless. Okay. This leads to the question, how do I get the blessing? Because I don't have an ark in my house. Or do I? The Lord blessed Obed-Edom. First Chronicles 26.1. The divisions of the gatekeepers from the Korathites 
Meshlamah, the son of Korah, one of the sons of Aphath. And then I'm going to skip forward to verse 4. Obed-Edom also had sons, Shemiah and the firstborn, which means Obed-Edom is of the tribe of the Korathites. They how did they know to put it in his house? Because he's of the right tribe. They had to have read the book. Or they just got lucky. I'll seed you that point. Maybe they just got lucky. But for three months, what is happening for three months? You can bet your bottom dollar David had his priests. He probably even got Gad to go and like, start reading. I need you guys to figure out how to move the ark. Can you go back to Numbers, Exodus, Leviticus, figure out what we're doing wrong so we can do it the right way, which means for three months they did some intensive Bible study. And they either got lucky with Obed-Edom or they um, were intentional about putting it in that house. And while it's in that house, like the blessings just start pouring out. Like God's trying to show them, if you do it my way, I just want to pour out blessings on you. And he shows in a noticeable way that Obed-Edom's house is just amazingly blessed while that ark is there. When God's at the center of a household, watch that household thrive. Now it was told to King David, like verse 12, like this is such a big deal. They went to the king about it. The Lord is blessing the house of Obed-Edom and all that belongs to him because of the ark of God. It was so noticeable, it gets reported to the king. Do you see what's happening with the ark over there? Like this guy's, these guys' sheep are always coming through. They're coming through perfect. You know, his cattle are happy and singing in the fields. Like what would blessing look like at this period in history, right? Travelers are just coming through and they're like, oh, I got spare gold. You can just have it. Like, what does that kind of blessing look like that it makes it a report for the king of the empire? Like, you need to know what's going on in this house, and it's because of the ark. So David went and brought up the ark of God from the house of Obed-Edom to the city of David with gladness. Anger turns to fear, turns to reading the word of God, turns to gladness. Do it the right way, God's blessing just comes. Also, God's trying to say, like, I'm going to bless this household, but when you do get it up to Jerusalem, I'm going to bless the whole kingdom. Like, things are going to go well when you do this the right way. God's punishment, then, isn't then just to punish. It's also to discipline and train and teach, which is one of the ways we look at trials in our life. Maybe this trial's happening because we needed to learn something from it, right? And so it was when those bearing the ark of the Lord had gone six paces, which means they're walking. It's not on a cart anymore that he sacrificed oxen and fatted sheep. The animals don't handle the ark. They get sacrificed before the ark. Then David danced before the Lord with all his might. He's totally confident he's doing the right thing because he's read God's word. And he's not scared anymore and he's not angry. He's dancing before the Lord. And by the way, every six paces, can you imagine how many oxen and sheep are going to get killed on the way to Jerusalem? Six steps, have a sacrifice. Six steps have a sacrifice. Where does all this food go? Feasting and barbecues. This is the coolest trip ever, right? So God's just, his people are being blessed. David's got all this stuff going on. And David wearing a linen ephod. We're going to come back to that point. It's a big one. He's wearing a linen ephod. He's not naked. He's wearing something. Bible writers tell us that. He's wearing a linen ephod. So David and all the house of Israel brought up the ark of the Lord with shouting and with the sound of the trumpet. You don't have this mass chaos anymore. It's just a trumpet and the voices of God's people. It's simplified worship. God doesn't need it to be fancy. He needs it to be honest. Wow, I just love this. 
First Chronicles 15 talks about how they're doing it right, how they're supposed to be walking it. These sacrifices are likely in a context, a burnt offering for sin, so that the priests carrying the ark are constantly covered with a burnt offering of, of this. That means that that burnt offering is going all the way up. It's purity. It's over the top. They're probably not eating it. I was joking about that. But we're going to have peace offerings coming up. That worship with all his might is not a half-hearted worship. I, I want to talk to you about, for the, this is convicting for me. When I go before the Lord with a worship that's of musical nature, because in Leviticus, worship is like showing up for Bible study. It's any sacrifice we make. Worship is doing something nice for other people in God's name. But this is a particular kind of worship, which is how we use it, which is musical worship. If we're going to do musical worship, we do it with all of our hearts. It's all in stuff, right? It's how God asks us to worship him. We don't worship halfway. We worship with all of it. The linen ephod, it doesn't say the linen, linen, the ephod, which is what the high priest would wear. It says a linen ephod, which is what all the other people would wear. Simplified clothing, no big ornate kingly robes. You know how kings would wear like gold stitching and everything? Just a linen ephod. David looks like everybody else in the crowd. He's just one of the masses. Why? Because he's not important. God is important. Any attention he brings to himself, he's going to get rid of any temptation to do that and take as this is not about King David. This is about the Lord God Almighty. The only person wearing any kind of gear other than a linen ephod might be the high priest. But everybody else, is, we're not drawing attention to ourselves. Worship then isn't to draw attention to ourselves. It's to give the glory to God. Right? So we get some real images of worship in practice here that came right out of some of that stuff in Leviticus. So worship is with all of our might, which maybe gets a little crazy, but worship is also orderly. Every six steps, they stop, <laughs> and, and there's some order to what's going on. It's not just chaos in the room. It's loud. I mean, there are trumpets going off, but it's not chaotic loud with cymbals and everything else crashing and banging. Right? There's some images here, and this isn't like a here's how we do worship set of rules. It's a historical example that shows us something that God accepted and he liked. So take that with a grain of salt. First Chronicles 15, 13 makes it really clear that they understood in all this worship that it was because they did not consult God about the proper order of things. So I like that insight from the First Chronicles account of this same story. They understood that they did it the wrong way the first time. And that's why they're so joyful this time. Verse 14, David danced. The word there is exactly what we think it means. He moved his body rhythmically to a musical song, right? He danced with his body, right? So there's exuberance here. I, you have to think of David as a 15-year-old shepherd writing songs. Was he dancing with the sheep? Was he out in the middle of the wilderness just dancing before the Lord? And how weird would that look, right? But he's got this relationship with God. It's all about God's blessing. So they read the Bible, 1 Corinthians 15, 13, and then they test it by moving it just a few steps at a time. Are we doing it the right way, Lord? Are we on the right track? They're never presuming that they've got it all figured out. And I just love that image. The obedience then still leads to an emotional response. We have some people in the church that react to emotionalism like it's a horrible thing. It's not a horrible thing when it's done in order. Does that make sense? We have other people in the church that are like, we should never be emotional. We have some people in the church that think our faith is all about our emotions. It's not quite either one of those, right? There is clearly an emotional response in verse 14 from David, but it comes because they did it in the right order and they're confident of that. 
It comes because they simplified the music and they made it something where it was mixed in with offerings. Very expensive offerings, right? They're giving of that beautiful meat and burning it up in a burnt offering format. And they're doing it because they love the Lord. It says all the house of Israel did that. God's way is not stifled. And there's an exuberance, not just with David, but the entire nation cutting loose together. And there is a great gladness that goes around that. We're wired to love it when we figure out how to do things the right way. Do you know that feeling? You remember it from when you were a child and you figured out how to solve that puzzle and it feels awesome. And there's this, yes, I did it. And you can hear this in younger grade levels when you get a sticky problem. Kids will overtly cheer when they get it and they figure it out. And they can't control themselves. It's a natural human response when we finally figure something out that we struggled with, right? I love when Grant and I play computer games together and we beat a boss fight that we had been struggling with and we, our characters died multiple times. I know I'm admitting I play computer games. Judge me later. When we finally figure out the puzzle behind that boss and knock him down, we cheer loudly. And I think God loves it when we finally figure out our relationship with God and there's a natural outpouring of praise that comes from that. We cheer loudly. And I think God smiles on that. Not when we play computer games. But when in our faith life and our faith walk, we finally understand God's calling for our life and we put that puzzle together, God's like, you got it. You figured it out. Praise the Lord. Or at least we're just, it's exuberance. It's a great feeling. God, I got it and I can feel your blessing and I'm finally working this out. And it took me 20 years, 30 years, 40 years. It took Moses a really long time. Loud, enthusiastic. They're shouting with the sound of the trumpet. It's enthusiastic, it's bold, and it's amazing. Have you ever been in a stadium when they score a touchdown or shoot a hockey puck into the net? Like there's natural exuberance that comes out of people when things they worship go well. There's natural exuberance amongst God's people when things we worship are moving forward. And it's awesome. And I, I think you desperately look for that, those communities of believers where we get to cheer together. and We get to see good things happening. It's like a music concert when your favorite song comes on and they play the first two notes and the whole crowd goes, yes, we know this one. And you can hear it. That's what heaven's going to be like, you guys. We're going to be worshiping God and there will be an outpouring of God's spirit that comes out of full and happy hearts knowing that we finally arrived. Praise the Lord, like this release comes. The stress of life is gone. We got to heaven. That's the goal. And God's people will rejoice. And we see that throughout the accounts of the end times. I want to be there. I want to be with God's people celebrating that God's plan all came together. Verse 16. Now as the ark of the Lord came into the city of David, Machal. Yes, I listened to it a few times. Machal. That's why I didn't know how to pronounce it. It's that sound you got to make. Michal. Saul's daughter looked through a window and saw King David leaping and whirling before the Lord. And she despised him in her heart. Let's remember that what Michal is mad about is that her husband was dancing with the people. It's not that he's running around naked. Like That's a weird read of that sentence. Right? That's kooky thinking. So they brought the ark of the Lord and set it in its place in the midst of the tabernacle that David had erected for it. And then David offered burnt offerings, haha, and here we go, and peace offerings before the Lord. Peace offerings means barbecue meal for everybody. Send the head of your household. They get a huge portion of meat. They bring it back to their household and they eat an awesome dinner together knowing that God gave them an awesome dinner. That's a peace offering. So those are the ones we've paid. Burnt offerings are good too. Yes, we got to deal with our sin. But man, the peace offering, that fellowship offering is just amazing. 
burnt offerings and peace offerings before the Lord. It's all done in front of God. And when David had finished offering burnt offerings and peace offerings, he blessed the people in the name of the Lord of hosts. He says a prayer over them, right? And then he distributed among all the people, among the whole multitude of Israel, both women and the men. Wait, women are not property? No, they actually are part of the blessing. Both the women and the men. To everyone a loaf of bread, a piece of meat, and a cake of raisins. So all the people departed, everyone to their house. They all went home and had a feast together as a family, knowing that God loves them. And they, they did it right. This is what God established with Moses and they're reading about this during their childhoods, and they're finally seeing it all work and come together just like God said it would. This had to be a really cool day in the life of God's people. But you got Michal, and she's all mad about it, and she's bitter about it. She despised him in her heart. David's key and instrumental, God's used him to make this happen, and all she can think is, oh, he's just whirling about, Right? I don't know about you. I know these kinds of people, and I'm flabbergasted by how you can exist like this. Why wouldn't you choose joy over that? So likely, she got this attitude from Saul, her dad, because Saul taught her what kings should be like. Kings should be dignified. They should be above the people. If she learned things from the Egyptian history, kings should be godlike. They should be so much more awesome than the people that the people understand they will never come close to that place. So kings would dress up in ornamental gear. They would look as elaborate as they can. They'd be all gussied up like a peacock. And, that, and part of that is it was a safety provision. If you're fearful of the king, you never attack the king because you don't even have a chance. That godlike king will smite you. So in some ways, if you're a king living according to the world, you are worried about what people think about you. Because if they don't respect you, they might try to assassinate you. This is a provision for safety. I'm just trying to defend Michal a little bit here. Like she's worried about her husband that he'll come under the same attacks that her dad did, right? And she's trying to coach her husband on how to be a king. What she doesn't know is that God's bringing a very different kind of king into the history of the world. A new kind of king that serves his people versus having the people serve him. So he's worshiping with the people. He looks like the people, and he's doing this completely different than what the world says a king should do. So she despises him. In the Hebrew, that's to hold with contempt or disdain. She's disgusted by him. This, you are a weak little man dancing in front of people. You should be sitting on a throne. They should be carrying you and dancing over you. And you're giving all that glory to this God that I can't touch and I can't even see a wooden idol of it? Really? She's disgusted by him. She's likely been affected by the idolatry that affected Saul's household. So to be superior means that you judge the inferior. That kind of arrogance feeds pride. In its place, in the midst of the tabernacle, God's put in his place. God's glory is set right. Now we got to deal with what kind of king this is going to be. Then David returned to bless his household. He's coming home with a share that looks just like everybody else's. He doesn't take a king's ransom. He takes his family's share just like every other head of household does. And he's coming home with all this food and raisin cakes. I don't know what a raisin cake is, but it sounds good. You know, raisin cakes, breads, food, and he's bringing it all home. He's super joyful. He's probably sweaty from whirling and dancing. Like, you know, he's got that glow about him. Like, it's been quite a day. He's got a little sunburn going, so he's, he's just glowing. And he's bringing that blessing home to his family. And then verse 20, and Michal, 
the daughter of Saul. I love how it puts that in there. She's the daughter of Saul. She's the daughter of a very different kind of king. Came out to meet David. So she stops him before he gets home to the rest of the family and says, how glorious was the king of Israel today? By the way, that's sarcasm, right? Right there in the Bible. Uncovering himself today in the eyes of the maids of, the, of his servants as one of the base fellows shamelessly uncovers himself. I want to unpack this because we got into this last week a little bit. The sarcasm starts with how glorious was the king. This is an issue of him being a king versus a common person, a base person, a base fellow, right? And her attitude about what a king should look like versus what her husband just did, right? This is sarcasm. Some people say sarcasm is a sign of intelligence. I think it's a sign of ignorance. You really don't see the whole picture when you're a mocker or a scoffer. And it's, the Bible's pretty clear. Like A lot of times when you see this, it's not a good thing. There's a lack of approval that doesn't make her right, but it reveals how little she knows of God's word. It reveals how little she knows of the historical significance of this special day and how little her spirit is resonating with God's people and what just happened. She's not getting it, right? And this is our friends and family that aren't believers. Sometimes they don't get the kind of joy that we have. They just don't get it. And that's a heartbreaking thing for us. How heartbreaking would it be for David to come home and his own wife doesn't understand what just happened? She just doesn't get it. Sarcasm often shows somebody's desire to look better than other people. I'm smarter than you, I'm better than you, and I can mock the things that you enjoy. So sarcasm. It's a haughty linguistic approach to a conversation. It allows not for people to have an equal footing with you. So her sarcasm puts her above David in this conversation. In all cultures and all languages, that's how that works, right? Sarcasm shows a superiority. The word uncovering there is the word gala, all right? Where we get the word gala, right? There's a festival. You've joined in the festival with everybody. The word uncovering there, so it can be translated naked or nakedness. Watch out for that translation. The Hebrews had a word for naked. It's erom. They had a word for nakedness, erva. They are nothing like gala. They don't even start with the same letter. So when it says uncovering there, it means that he's not wearing his kingly garments. He doesn't look like a king. He's not wearing his David's coat of many colors, right? So he's uncovered himself. We know he's wearing something because it said he was wearing something. He's wearing a linen ephod, which does cover your body parts, right? So the gala is to reveal yourself. I think in the Hebrew, it doesn't mean a big party, um, but it does mean to show yourself before the Lord usually. So there's lots of uses of it in the Bible. I want to read you just another one so we can, again, this is a tripping point passage for a lot of people. 1 Samuel 3.21, same authors as 2 Samuel. Then the Lord appeared again in Shiloh, for the Lord, Lord galed himself to Samuel in Shiloh by the word of the Lord. Does that mean that the Lord showed Samuel his body parts? No, it means the Lord revealed himself. He showed himself to, to, to Samuel. He, he gave of himself and made himself open to Samuel. So I think we should trust that the Bible is using the word in a very similar way here. David showed himself to the people to be a, a man of joy and a man of worship. He revealed himself, right? He uncovered his kingly veneer and he took that off. And I would say that's to be without hypocrisy, without a, a front or a face that we put on for other people. If we're happy, we're happy. There's no faking that. If we're sad, we're sad. There's no faking that, 
we come as we are before the Lord with no hypocrisy. We uncover ourselves. We take off those things. They're, they're okay out in the world, but when we come before God, we take all that off. And that's not, not, it's weird that people read this passage and all they see is perversion. It tells you how perverse our culture has become, where you can't read this passage and understand how beautiful this idea is that David's just revealing himself before God and for the people. That's not a sick, perverse passage. It says something about his worship, not about his physical clothing. So specifically in verse 14, if you want to just double check that idea, it says he's wearing clothing. It makes it, it's like God knew this would be a tripping point in a perverse generation. So he puts that in there for us. David didn't do anything to stand out or make himself more popular. He didn't use the opportunity as a political gain, which she thinks he should have done. This should have been a celebration of his kingship, not of the Lord's dominance. So, and she even says at the end, you are as one of the base fellows shamelessly uncovering. You're just like the worker on the street. You look just like, a, like, you're, like you do base labor. Who are you? And you're doing it in front of everyone. So she kind of says, when you have the maids of the servants, yes, there were employees of employees, right? They're the lowest of the low people in your culture, the maids of the servants. And you're not even putting yourself above them. Right? And they're seeing you do this. Don't you realize as a king what a threat that is to you and this family? Like, we just saw Saul's family get eradicated. Like, sons and every, and like, there's only one of them left. So when a king loses power in this ancient world, that's really dangerous. So Michal is more worried about that than she's worried about glorifying the Lord. She's more worried about what other people think of her than she is about what God thinks about her. Again, just lots of lessons here. So in a day of great joy, great victory for God, a critical person shows up and ruins David's day. Or does she? Verse 21. So David says to Michal, it was before the Lord I choose me instead of your father in all his house to appoint me ruler over all the people of the Lord over Israel. Right? It was before the Lord who chose me instead of your father in all his house to appoint me ruler over the people of the Lord of Israel. Therefore, I will play music before the Lord. And I will be even more undignified than this. And I will be humble in my own sight. But as for the maidservants of whom you've spoken by them, I will be held in honor. Not only are you wrong, Michal, but maybe God picked me over your father for a reason. Maybe I'm looking at kingship totally different and your dad looked at it the wrong way. Do you hear what he's saying there? Do you see what he's saying there? first, it was before the Lord. I'm not trying to impress you, and I'm not trying to impress the servants of the servants. I'm trying to impress my Lord God Almighty. Like, I love how he just puts the Lord out in front. I'm not trying to impress anybody. So this is that thin line in our worship, right? Is the person worshiping in that way because they're doing it before the Lord, or are they doing it to get attention for themselves? And those are heart issues that are hard to see from the outside. But that's a big question, right? So who chose me instead of your father. Michal, I'm not your dad. Husbands, sometimes we say that to our wives. I am not your dad. I'm the person God put you with, right? I'm the king that God has put in place over this country, and I'm not Saul. And I'm not going to rule like Saul did because he didn't inquire of the Lord. Number three, to be ruler over the people of the Lord. David doesn't even call him his people. He doesn't say, I'm going to be ruler over my people. Most kings speak that way. He says, I'm going to be a ruler over the people of the Lord. I'm just a steward. I actually am that low. 
right? I'm just a servant of the king. And I think David's heart has been uniquely trained over 15 years. He's still a shepherd on the inside. He's taking care of these sheep because his dad put him in charge of the sheep. He's taking care of this kingdom because God put him in charge of the kingdom. But his status hasn't changed a bit. He's just a servant. I love that, don't you? Don't you just hear that and think, man, I wish I got to live in David's kingdom. Therefore, because of this, I will play music before the Lord. You know what I'm going to do? I'm going to do back the same thing I did when I was a shepherd. I'm going to write songs and make songs because I didn't earn the kingship. I didn't work for it. I didn't fight for it. All I did is wrote music at every time when I was with the Lord. So I'm going to continue to write music. That's my plan as a king. At that point, you're wondering if that's a great national strategy. And it actually is. He's going to serve the Lord first, and then out of that's going to be a healthy nation. And he's not trying to elevate himself This is the kind of joy that I think God loves in the face of criticism from his own wife. I'm so glad I don't have a wife like this. Like I come home and my wife's like all excited with me. What a blessing that is, right? To have a wife that's just on board. And I will be even more undignified. (laughs) When I worship, I'm not trying to be dignified. Like we got to hear what he's saying here. When I worship, I'm not trying to look like a king. So I'm going to worship the Lord all in. And you have to understand. I think he's talking to his wife. You're going, you got to understand this. Because it's going to be, I'm going to continue to do what I just did today. That's the plan. And I don't need to look like a king because God made me a king. Right? I don't have to protect my throne because God protects my throne. And David's going to act like that as we move through 2 Samuel. So David's coming home on a high and he doesn't let this critical person ruin his day. That's really hard to do. Right? Usually critical people go right to the core. So if God wants to take away the kingship from David, he's okay with that. And we're going to see him model that when the kingdom gets taken away from him. He just walks out the door. He's okay with it. Easy come, easy go. Right? So he doesn't have to protect things. It's God's will that matters. And I will be even more undignified. I want to get into the word more undignified. When we see that more or added to on a word in the Hebrew... We look it up, and sure enough, in the Hebrew, it's kalal ad kalal. It's just a repeat of the word. I'll be undignified, undignified. And the word kalal means to be slight or small or trifling. It does not mean to be naked, right? It just means to be a small person. You want to know how small I'll be? I'll be smaller than small because I'm under the servants of the servants. I serve them. Do you get the first, last idea that David's trying to share with his wife? Ah, This is so powerful because Jesus teaches it too. If you want to be great, start serving people. Look for people you can minister to. That's how to become great in the kingdom. Like we went to a friend's uh, funeral this week. Awesome woman, awesome woman. She has cancer and she's over at the Claire house every week ministering to people that have AIDS, right? She's that kind of woman. Packed house. I would say standing room only, but there wasn't room to stand in the room anymore. And I'm looking around the room, and I see hundreds of people I don't even know. And I thought I knew her circle of friends pretty well. I wasn't even close. This woman had infected so many people for the Lord that this room is full of people, and they're all like, you can just see that this we're going to miss a good friend here. It was as good as a wedding can be in that she was a believer. We know where she's at right now. But man, the influence she had. And when you meet her, she was the most graceful, what's the word for it? unassuming person you'd ever meet. Love poured out of her like a grandma all the time. 
And so her kids, her grandkids, her friends, her neighbors, her withdrawn acquaintances, she went and volunteered her time up at the VA hospital, just taking care of people that were at the end of their life, just to minister to them and be with them and bless them. Awesome. Those people are precious in the kingdom of God. We lost a champion, and her name doesn't go in any TV show, right? It, it, the flags didn't go to half-mast. The world didn't even notice except for the world that God had put her in. And everybody in that world lost somebody, even me. And when we miss people like that, it's just beautiful. So that's McCall's problem. She doesn't get what a kingdom is. She doesn't understand what service is. And David's trying to teach her, I'm going to be humble in my own sight. I'm going to be low and humiliated because I don't care to be profitable. I don't want to be kalal, or I, I want to be kalal on kalal. I want to be little and trifling and of little account is the translation of that word. I'm going to make myself as small as I can so that God gets all the glory in everything that I do. Man, David's got a whole different view. And we get this beautiful image of Jesus in how he's approaching this, this explanation. In context, David wants to have a clear conscience. So his worship isn't out of line. He's not trying to grab attention for himself. His dancing and whirling was in concert with everybody around him, right? They're all dancing. And it was consistent with everyone. And that was her problem is she wanted her husband to be standing out, to have more weight or gravity. As for the maidservants that you're so worried about, they actually think well of me. You don't understand, Michal. They actually honor me and they say, look at this king who could be puffing himself over me, but they don't. Right? They, you think that they think I'm not a worthy king? And I beg to differ with you. These handmaidens, they think I'm awesome. That's not a promise that he's going to marry them all, by the way. That's just him explaining what a kingdom looks like. I am held in honor by these people. You think me of little weight, kalal, kalal. And the word for honor there is kabod. It's the opposite of kalal, kalal. You think me light, they think me weighty or heavy. And we're not talking about physical fatness, right? You think I'm insignificant. They think I'm the most significant king this country's ever had. You don't understand what greatness is and what power is and what strength looks like. Strength does not dominate or twist arms. It does not control by fear or by power. Strength controls by serving other people to the point where they love that person enough to respond and minister back. That's a different kind of strength. And David introduces it not just to the Bible, but to the history of the world. David's one of the first leaders in a kingly role that acts like that. Saul acted like a worldly king, but David's acting like the kind of leader God wants to have. It sounds like God picked the right guy. Verse 23, therefore Michal, the daughter of Saul, had no children to the day of her death. <laughs> Whoops. So that could be one of two things. One, it could be God just doesn't bless her with children. Okay, that's how God's going to deal with that kind of attitude. He will not bless that person. Or David just never has sex with her again. Like he's just done with her, right? Like he doesn't need that counsel in his presence. So when he's coming home, he's coming home to one of his other however many wives. He's not coming home to a call anymore, right? He's going to come home to somebody who actually understands how to love the Lord. So the fact of verse 23 being added in there with a therefore, the writer does insert that there's a consequence to her attitude here and gives us a little guidance on how we should be reading this whole conversation, right? She's wrong and David's right. Either um, it doesn't say what it is or how it is, 
but we can see that her bitterness wasn't fruitful. When we meet critics, even within the church, that want to critique things, it's generally not profitable. You get a people with a lot of complaints, and a great question is, well, who have you blessed in the last week? And if, they're, uh, if their heart is one of complaint, they're probably not blessing people, they're probably cursing people, because that's their nature. So for us, at least, if what we have is always a heart to kind of complain about things, we need to kind of check that a little bit and think, okay, how do I give myself over to worship instead of over to complaining and seeing things through the world's eyes? So I know that's a lot of commentary on these passages. I get really blessed by this because here's what I walk away with. I can go all in for Jesus and not care what people think. Like that's For me, that's my walk away with this passage. I don't need to worry about what anybody thinks because God's going to bless those people that honor and serve him first. Period. And that's it. And it doesn't need to look good. That's why I wear a ball cap when I teach. It's because my head gets cold and I want to wear a cap. So I admire the bald people in the room that don't need to do that. But for me, I like my head nice and toasty warm. And I don't have to worry about what people think. I know one pastor that teaches in his shorts and he's gotten critiqued for that. Do you think as a pastor you should say dude and man all the time when you teach? And he's like, I don't know, dude. I'll try to work on that, man. Like, that's his response because he's not trying to impress people. And I love that about my brothers and sisters in the faith that aren't work, working on impressing people all the time. And we encourage that in our household, as you know. Like, it's not about impressing people. It's about serving Lord God Almighty. Amen? Let's pray. Dear Lord God, we just thank you. We thank you for the grace that you give. Lord, we thank you for your, the, the commands that you've given us that are so clear. And Lord, help us not to step in a pothole and to trip and to misplace or, or arrogantly think that you need us. Um, Lord, just a, a slip up on that for a moment cost Uzzah his life. Uh, and Lord, we want to honor you in the ways that you've told us to honor you. And Lord, we don't do that with emotion, but when we do it right, we have emotion. And Lord, we want to get that right too. And Lord, it doesn't matter. Um, what it looks like or where it's at, but Lord, we want a peace offering with you. We want to accept the gift of Jesus as our sacrifice for sin, and we want fellowship with you. We want to follow that up, enjoying all the benefits and the fruits of the Spirit that you've promised to give us when we do it your way. So Lord, I just pray for each person in this room. May they continue, continue to honor you with their lives. Lord, the next person we run into after we walk out the door, Lord, help us to show them you and to bless them with encouragement, words of grace, laughter, joy, peace. Lord, may the exuberance of our heart be something that overpours. And when the first critic shows up and they're sick of all of our joy, help us to not care. Lord, help us to really correct their, their idea of what joy is all about. And Lord, let no one in this room puff themselves up so that we can prove ourselves better than others. Help us to do exactly the opposite, to deflate ourselves and come in as servants and, and respectfully serve the people around us. Even the non-believers, Lord, um, help us to just pour blessing and love into their lives to where they don't even understand how we tick. Um, and Lord, we just pray for that kind of attitude. Help us to be like David in that respect. Lord, help us to always go back to the word. I'm just reminded of that, Lord, and we've talked about it tonight. Whenever somebody says the Bible says this or the Bible says that or Jesus, God says this or Jesus says that. Lord, help us to just go back to your word and test every spirit against what's actually in the Bible because that's where we get our confidence. Your word is a shelter we can run into. It is a strong tower. You're a, 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 a hen with her wing over wanting to gather your people under her wing. And Lord, your word is our refuge. Your word is our salvation. 
It's the hope that we put on our head. It's the chest piece we put on as we go out into this world, Lord, and we want to serve you in that kind of way. Lord, help us to be all in and to be joyful about it and help us to just be filled with joy. So Lord, I pray your blessing in Jesus' name. If you found this teaching helpful, insightful, you can support this podcast by sharing it with a friend. Screenshot it, tag it, post it on your social media.